When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, Rational Security listeners. Scott here. A quick note before we get started. We had to record this episode a little early this week, specifically on Tuesday, March 28th. So there are a few subsequent developments we don't talk about that occurred between when we recorded and when this episode was released. Thanks in advance for understanding. Guys, there's no way I'm doing this without scotch. <laughs> what, Ratsack or talking about Israeli politics? Either. But I, I think you guys, one thing that if I have one complaint about Rational Security 2.0, it's that you've given up the tradition of scotch while recording, which I think was one of the, you know, up there with object lessons is part of what made Rational Security Rational Security. I think there's I'm something drinking to that. coffee. No, that's exactly the point. <laughs> that, is, that is almost the opposite. <laughs> it's my drug of choice. A nice way of putting it is that rational security version 1.0 was all about depressants and rational version, rational security 2.0 is all about stimulants. It's like a classic. So, so yeah, that's why, Scott, and I need to s- slow down talking. Yeah, exactly. I do think this is, reflects the fact that two of the three of us have young children and don't sleep very much. Because if I had a drink, the one time or two times I've had a drink in the middle of the day recording Rational Security, I almost fell asleep by the end of the episode. You don't need much. It's The goal is not to, to put yourself to sleep. The goal is to have the taste and the smell of scotch on your lips while you are uh, recording the episode. Ben, tell the audience what, what you're drinking right now. It looks very tasty. I am drinking a mysterious bottle of scotch. It is called the Glenlivet Enigma. <laughs> it's actually apple juice, everyone. It, no, it is actually the highest proof scotch I have ever drunk. It is 122 proof. It burns all the oh. way down. It showed up mysteriously during the last few years. Nobody could identify who had sent it. And nobody will drink it except me. But if you are the person who sent the Glenlivet Enigma, uh, thank you for not poisoning it, by the way. I will never drink another bottle of scotch that is unidentified in its origin, but uh, I am very grateful for this one. Well, I will say we had a bottle of, what was it? Some sort of cask-like kind of flavored bourbon in the studio that I started drinking one time we were recording in the podcast studio back in the office. And it was so good. I think by the end, I made it my object lesson, <laughs> I decided. And it was quite impressive. But I did, by the end, of that, I was like, oh, I'm tipsy because I don't drink very much <laughs> these days. Two drinks. And even though I'm a very large man, it really takes me under. Uh, so your resilience, your endurance is the impressive part. But what well, that? we'll see if I'm flurring my word by the end of the fall. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Rational Security. I am one of your regular co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson, and I am thrilled to be here with my two regular co-hosts, Alan Rosenstein. Hello. And Quinta Jurassic. Hello. 
And we are so excited to be joined once again by co-host Emeritus, senior co-host Emeritus and editor-in-chief of Lawfare, and kind of our bosses, and at least some some ways more direct, some ways less direct, Mr. Benjamin Wittes. Ben, thank you for joining us this week. Greetings. Yeah, like he's our boss, but we don't like respect him or anything. Let's just let's just let's just clarify some things, please. I would not have it any other way. I mean, you know, first comes respect, then comes fear, then comes a coup in which you get ousted. So I I, I will take the the gentle contempt over the revolution any day. That's actually a chapter that few people have read in uh, The Prince. <laughs> it's right. It's, it's how not to get overthrown. And people people miss that footnote about dog shirts, which is weird because the secret is if you're in a dog shirt, no one can ever throw you. It's too it's too adorable. You would feel terrible if you were to shove a knife through the eye of this thing. So yeah, you, you have to be really. taken seriously to be overthrown. That's, I think, the, uh, the order. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's going to be my slogan. That actually explains a lot of the clothes in like Renaissance Italy. I feel like a lot of puffy pants, really, <laughs> really collars, ridiculous hats. Results trying to look a little unserious, a little gestery, you know. Well, we are excited to have you here for what is not a particularly lighthearted episode of Rational Security, but we are excited to talk about a few urgent items that are pending and simmering in the background. And what we are calling in your honor, Ben, for some of your early Twitter work, the tick, tick, tick edition. Topic one for this week, Rebel Aviv. Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu's efforts to dramatically reform Israel's legal system hit a roadblock this week in the form of widespread popular protests. In the form of a roadblock. And a roadblock, among, <laughs> a roadblock, among other forms of widespread <laughs> popular protests. After sacking his defense minister for suggesting that the reform should be delayed, Netanyahu did just that, even as he also took steps to allow his most far-right allies to set up their own militia. What does this all mean for the future of Israeli democracy? Topic two, wake up in the morning feeling like Jay Biddy. Anybody, anybody get the reference? I Nothing? love Kesha with a dollar sign. Love her so much. One of the great artists of our time. I, yeah, I don't know how to feel about this song. And when I looked up the lyrics, I was like, these lyrics are even worse than I expected, honestly, going into this. But I'm glad I remembered it was a song I could reuse for the purpose of this headline. President Joe Biden may be poised to try and ban TikTok from the United States in light of the Chinese government's opposition to efforts to force a sale. If he doesn't take such steps, Congress might. But is either route legally viable? And is either policy approach appropriate for this particular moment? Topic three, wacko we do. In honor of the city of Waco, Texas, whose motto is wacko we do. (laughs) Because this week they did a little more on the wacko front. Uh, Former President Trump held his first major campaign rally there this past week. Among the headliners were controversial shock rocker Ted Nugent and a literal chorus of individuals being prosecuted for participating in the January 6th insurrection, who decided, I believe, if I recall correctly, to sing the national anthem over video of Donald Trump reciting the Pledge of Allegiance. This all preceded a set of remarks by former President Trump in which he dug deep into conspiracy theories and put his rival Ron DeSantis on blast. What should we make of the event, and what does it tell us about the 2024 race? For our first topic, Quinta, let me hand it over to you to get us started. So I'm going to wind us up here and then really hand it over to Ben, who I think has been watching this issue perhaps the most closely of, of any of us. We've run a a great series of pieces on lawfare that I would really recommend to any listeners who are looking to dig into this in in detail. But the gist of it is that Netanyahu and the sort of far-right coalition with which he's governing have been 
pushing aggressively forward with a series of judicial reforms. I think they I've I've seen them described as sort of with that shorthand judicial reforms, but I think that really undersells quite how dramatic they would be and how they would rework the Israeli judicial and legal system and give the governing uh, coalition an enormous amount more power, uh, which is an alarming prospect for Israeli democracy, particularly because the governing coalition right now is such an extremely far-right government. We saw a really dramatic string of events over the last few days with Israeli Minister of Defense uh, Gallant saying that he opposed the reforms, that they would damage Israeli national security. He was then fired by Netanyahu. This saw, um, I think, a a number of other resignations um, around the globe by Israelis, including the consul general uh, in New York, and a wave of truly enormous protests in Israel. If you've seen some of the the photos and videos from the protests in Tel Aviv, I mean, whole streets in front of the Knesset are just packed. Um, And there are also some very dramatic fires, which I always uh, appreciate. There was also, uh, I believe, at least briefly, a a general strike with planes not flying out of Mangorian Airport in Tel Aviv. So, Ben... Let me turn it over to you. Bring us up to speed. What did Netanyahu do um, in response to these protests? And is this a success for Israeli democracy or is it really just a stay of execution? So I wouldn't say Israeli democracy has been sentenced to death. And therefore, I'm not sure a stay of execution is quite the right metaphor However, it is not a victory either in the sense that the judicial reform package, as it is known, a bit of a euphemism really, is not dead. And so the thing that the that animated the protests has really been deferred, not defeated. Uh, so whether whether we should understand it as a a victory for uh, in the long term, whether we will understand it as a victory for Israeli democracy or a deferment of the passage of this very majoritarian and anti-checks and balances bill, uh, I think really is yet to be determined. It is also yet to be determined whether the government of Bibi Netanyahu is likely to survive this. And if it does, the cost of that may be empowering some of the most far-right elements that are uh, otherwise going to help bring him down, or whether uh, the government will fall, thereby giving a real chance for the democratic forces of the country to uh, regroup. And uh, if, you know, polls show that if you had an election now, Bibi would lose very badly. And so you could imagine a few more pushes and the government falls, you have elections and you have a completely different complexion of government elected in response. So I think there's a lot of different outcomes that are within the reasonable realm of possibility here from from a a very decisive victory of the democratic forces of Israel, uh, which range, by the way, from quite right-wing in conventional terms to quite left-wing and uh, some parties that are even outside of that left-right spectrum. So don't think of, you know, democratic here as 
you know, in a kind of left-right sense. They're really a more procedural and pre-political set of values than that. And then the other possibility is that this is a temporary reprieve and that Netanyahu gets this done. And I think, you know, some of the rhetoric is pretty extreme, but uh, that would be a a very dramatic change in the governing structure of the state of Israel since its formation. So I... I will admit that I I find a lot of this quite confusing. And so I wanted to sort of think it through and maybe in the form of just asking you, Ben, a, a question and you can sort of explain to me what's going on. And I should also say that like I am not sympathetic to Benjamin Netanyahu and I'm certainly not sympathetic to the sort of far-right coalition that he has advanced. So my presumption is that you know, if they're trying to change the judiciary, um, that's a bad thing. But when I get into the details of some of this, I, I will find it perplexing the framing of the folks who are against the judicial reform bill, whatever you want to call it, as pro-democracy. And I find this especially true given uh, the kind of, I think, inescapable comparison to how the politics of judicial review work in America, which is pretty reversed. The way I understand it, right, Israel has no constitution. Uh, It has a basic law, but uh, fundamentally, it's a parliamentary supremacy culture, uh, culture. Until kind of in the 90s, the Supreme Court said, nope, And then Parliament sort of went along with it. And the Supreme Court is insulated, right? It is not an appointed position. It's much more of an internal civil bureaucracy situation. And many times the Supreme Court has gone against the small d democratic desires of Parliament, uh, of, of the Israeli Knesset. And you have a situation in which demographics are such that Israeli society just fundamentally is changing, right? You have much more of a much bigger ultra Orthodox community. You have, uh, you know, a bigger um, uh, Sephardic community, whereas historically the Israeli elite has been more sort of Ashkenazi. And so um, the forces that are trying to cut the judiciary back, to me, it seems like they are plausibly claiming a democratic mantle. Uh, now, to, to this, I, I can imagine two responses. One being it's actually not democratic because you have to understand that Benjamin Netanyahu is going to cling into power as long as possible to avoid indictment. So what he's trying to do is eliminate checks and balances to his future autocratic rule. That's one theory. Okay. Another theory is to say, actually, the issue is not democracy, it's liberalism. Right? What we are concerned about is Israel becoming a Hungary-like, Orban-esque, illiberal democracy. Those two are both very coherent arguments for me, but that's different than how I understand the debate playing out. And so I, I do find myself like very confused that trying to cut down the unelected, you know, judiciary that invented its own power is anti-democratic in the first instance, especially when I consider this in the context of American progressive debates about the Supreme Court. Okay. So you've actually raised several distinct issues and each of them could support hours and hours of conversation. But let me just break them down for a minute. First of all, your account of Israeli parliamentary supremacy is not incorrect, but it is incomplete. So unlike other parliamentary systems, Israel is a system of pure parliamentary supremacy, unmediated by anything else. So there's no federalism. It is statist in an almost French-like way. It's, you know, everything is a department of this one power center. Uh, the government runs the Knesset, not the other way around, like in a, in a lot of parliamentary systems. 
the legislature and the executive are effectively fused. And so in a way that is not true in very many other countries, if you control the Israeli government, the only thing between you and whatever you want to do is this one institution, the judiciary. And so the the line between the two things that you're describing, the two outcomes, this illiberal outcome and this autocratic outcome, are actually pretty blurry. You know, without the without the court system in Israel, you really do have an elected autocrat possibility. It's not a certainty by any means, but you can get into real majoritarian tyranny pretty quickly, particularly given the illiberalism of some of the parties involved. The second thing is it is not entirely true that the Supreme Court invented its own power. The Likud party, actually, which people forget this, but is historically the party of of Western liberalism in, in Israel. The the socialist labor party was the party of sort of middle European statism, right? And, um, and we always forget this because they were the, the moderates on Palestinian and, and foreign policy issues. But, you know, it was the Jabotinskyists, the people like Bibi's father, uh, the people like Menachem Begin, who were the big believers in pluralism and Israeli democracy, and yes, in the Israeli legal context, human rights. And the, the, the law, the horrible law that everybody rails against, that the, on the right now, that everybody rails against as this basis for judicial activism, the basic law, human rights, is a Likud law. Um, it was, you know, the creation of Justice Minister Don Meridor, who is still alive, by the way, and will have nothing to do with the Likud these days. But this, you know, this is traditionally the party of Israeli democratic culture um, in a way that, you know, has really been done violence to. Uh, the empowerment of the Supreme Court was partly the creation of the Knesset itself, and which passed these very... You know, they're recognizable to Americans who live under rules like substantive due process. They have, they have sweeping words about the dignity of humans, which judges then have to interpret. And so the Israeli Supreme Court has certainly been activist. It has certainly been aggressive. There are some genuine quirks in Israeli law that have enabled that. But it's also the case that this system of parliamentary supremacy has nurtured and tolerated it for a very long time. And without it, it is very hard to imagine how you could have a a system that was not Orbanesque or, uh, you know, Polish, you know, law and justice party kind of illiberalism. And so I, I think the answer to your question is very complicated. And yes, there is an element of it that is traditional Ashkenazi elites uh, fearing the barbarians at the gate. And the barbarians are, in their view, ultra-Orthodox people. And there's no good translation for this. It's not Sephardic, but it's what Israelis call Mizrahi, kind of Eastern Jews, and who, who tend to be much less liberal, um, much less uh, interested in negotiating things with Palestinians, much more religious, um, 
And uh, so, yeah, there is a culture war element to it. That said, I don't think it is um, the attempts by both the left and the right to map it onto American judicial politics are very mischievous. And it really lives, it has borrowed some rhetoric from the American wars over the courts, but it really lives in a very Israeli reality. The part of this that strikes me as, I think, interesting is that it seemed to me, at least, the thing that brought Netanyahu back from the edge most recently, after he saw a cabinet member object and say, let's hold up on implementing this, kicked him out of the cabinet. After we know President Biden had a, for the standards of this administration, which usually tries to keep engagements with Israel pretty quiet, honestly, uh, and relatively amicable, a pretty you know, strongly worded readout of an engagement that Biden had with Netanyahu about a week ago. Um, that doesn't appear to have really been the thing persuading Netanyahu. It seems though that the big popular uprising had coalition partners worried, right? That seemed to be the latest reporting I saw. I'm not sure who in the coalition was the one they were worried about defecting. So we know the answer to that question. We do. Okay. And yeah. and it's specifically so that two things happened. The first was that Defense Minister Gallant and people should appreciate how courageous this move that he made was. Um, stepping up and putting your neck out against Bibi Netanyahu is not something that a lot of people have survived politically in the last several years. It's roughly like being a Republican who comes out against Trump. It's a career-ending thing. And he did it, and he had two people with him, uh, Yuli Edelstein and another politicians. So there was, you know, this is a majority of 64 out of 120. Three of them are now cannot be counted on to vote for the package. So at that point, Netanyahu was still appearing to go forward. Uh, he still seemed to think he had the votes. But there was another element, which was that both the Shas party, which is the uh, Mizrahi ultra-Orthodox party, and the United Torah Judaism Party, which is the old guard Haredi uh, ultra-Orthodox party of the Ashkenazim, came out and said they would support a pause. And that was, these are coalition partners, and that was understood to be saying that you can't count on the support of the ultra-Orthodox establishment, at least not without a pause to regroup. And that combined with what was going on in the military, which was what Gallant had responded to, really seems to have spooked Netanyahu, combined with the fact that there was a general strike, the universities were closed, the, uh, and so that, that seems to be the, the hint of defections from the ultra-Orthodox world seems to have been what tipped him over the edge. So what, I think the thing that really this speaks to me again, is that we have to put this latest development against the recent trend of Israeli elections, right? And we have seen a rapid series of Israeli governments exist for six months to a year to maybe a little change, and then lose a coalition partner, fall out of, cease to have the 60 seats or 61 seats they need to form a new government. And then we have snap elections. And we've had this rapid series of elections. In that environment, normally, it would seem like a wild thing to do to try and pass through a huge fundamental reform package, because if it's really controversial, the odds of losing a coalition partner are really low, and you can only afford a handful of them. But 
that doesn't seem to deter people here because you've got this strong pull in the outer front. And Netanyahu's challenge seems to be, I got to reconcile what motivates people on my farthest perimeter of my support base and reconcile with them with the fact that I've got to keep 60 people in this space, including some folks who might not go that far. How likely is that a balancing act that he's going to be able to maintain? Well, so if you'd asked me three months ago, I would have said this is government with a lot of staying power because it is all right wing and religious and they agree on a lot. But the problem is that you're framing of the problem is exactly right. That So in order to hold this government together, you have to placate some genuinely radical people. And, you know, the most famous of these is Itamar Ben-Gvir, the minister of, of public security. But the uh, finance minister, Bezala Smotrich, is also just extremely far right. And these are people who want to provoke Palestinians for a living. They want to create, uh, you know, Ben-Gvir was a kind of criminal before he went into politics and even after. Um, These are people who are not satisfied with their day unless they have provoked conflict. And so if you're making up a government of them, they're going to make demands on you that are dramatic. And if you have no capacity to gain support from the centrist parties, and Bibi no longer has any capacity to do that, you have to constantly be feeding this beast. And this this episode is an example of that. And I think it is very plausible that the fallback positions will also create conflict of this of this type. So I think it's a it's a you know, if you'd asked me three months ago, I would have said the shelf life of this government should be measured in years or maybe sort of 18-month increments. Uh, but now I would say, let's go back to the habit of measuring Israeli government shelf life in weeks and months. Before we close this out, can we talk about the sieve mill part of it? Because that is to me still the most striking element of this, right? I mean, Israel is, for all its faults and pathologies, you know, generally considered an advanced consolidated democracy. And yet what it seems we've seen just in the last few days between on the one hand, a a real kind of mass refusal of reservists to be in the the military, um, which led to, I think, a somewhat ironic fiery speech by Netanyahu about how important it is to serve in the military, given that a huge part of his base is ultra-Orthodox who are exempt from military service. So you have that on the one hand, right, which is, you know, a very disturbing breakdown in civil relations, uh, putting aside the merits of what we're arguing about. And then on the other side, you have this this deal between Netanyahu and and uh, Ben Gvir, the the security minister, to create a uh, national guard, which uh, a lot of critics think is a, basically a, a private militia. I mean, in, in a span of four days, this seems to be these like tectonic shifts in uh, how any consolidated democracy should think about civilian control over the military. And I just wonder, I mean, am I overreading this? And if not, is this the sort of Rubicon that you know you 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 cannot go back over? Like once once the reservists have made clear that they have power, then those who are against the reservists need to create their own military power center. And now you just can't have a democracy under those conditions. It just doesn't work. So I would say what you're stating as a thesis is really more of a hypothesis. So first of all, the Israeli military has always been 
a very high prestige institution in Israeli society and has always had political power of a sort that American, it would be unthinkable in the United States. People go directly from the army into politics. The military chief of staff is one of the most important. He's not formally a political figure, but he is in fact a political figure and often becomes prime minister after leaving uh, the military. And so the the sense of civil relations in the Israeli context and the, the American context are, are really quite different. That said, this example is very striking, even in the Israeli context. And uh, I think it can be read one of two ways. One is the civilian military relationship as it is constituted is in Israel only works in the context of genuine checks and balances. And in fact, you will not have an elite group of pilots to conduct your raids over Syria if they are not assured that they are operating in a rule of law environment. And that would be the, the sort of the way the pilots would talk about what they did not showing up for reserve duty. The other way to think about it is the more alarmed version that you framed it, which is this is the military establishment basically extorting something from the political system or flexing its muscle over the political system, and that that's a really dangerous thing. I think we don't know the answer to that at this stage. I do think you saw the military elites here saying, hey, we want to live in a conventional, you know, rule of law republic, you know, how much that's the Israeli citizen army and how Turkish that may be in its military as the guardians of the secular republic, I, I think is yet to be determined. The Ben Gvir National Guard issue is much more obviously menacing. You know, it's uh, Israeli political parties don't tend to have their own militias, and the cost of keeping Ben Gvir in the government uh, seems to have been that Netanyahu at least appears to have agreed to create a national guard under Ben Gvir. Uh, that's a pretty horrible thing if it's true. The only good news in that is that Netanyahu's word is not worth anything. And so what he said to keep Ben Gvir in the government may last as long as it takes him to take it into the bathroom and wipe his ass with it. Well, on that note. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. It, you, you need to work that into the, to, to, to your segue. Well, this is so, well. <laughs> <laughs> that was awesome, man. Well done. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> from wipes of one sort to memory wipes of another <laughs> something i'll allow it good enough <laughs> excellent something. Something. i'll allow it the expression on quinta's face right now is, is <laughs> it's, worth, uh, it's just great Qu Qu quinta despite being much younger than all of us is the only adult in this podcast <laughs> that has long been my role <laughs> Let us turn our eyes to cyberspace uh, and some events happening with some folks' favorite social media platform. Not mine. I'm actually not on TikTok and have barely interacted with it, if I'm being completely honest. 
But TikTok, one of the most widely used social media platforms in the world, uh, in the United States, huge subscriber base here, but under a pretty exceptional amount of pressure, both from the Biden administration and from Congress. In the past two weeks, I think it's been two to three weeks, we've seen reports that the Biden administration was making efforts to pressure TikTok to sell its U.S. operations or subsidiaries to U.S. held or at least not Chinese government affiliated owners. Uh, That move was opposed by the Chinese government, which puts the Biden administration in a tricky position. Either it can try and prohibit TikTok, something the Trump administration tried to do, but face some legal roadblocks in doing so, or it might be able to try and unwind TikTok's purchase or a purchase related to TikTok, actually the purchase of a kind of separate app that was in the United States in 2017, Music Ali, uh, I think is the jurisdictional hook for the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States that the Biden administration has been looking at but where they might have an ability to unwind certain transactions or otherwise cause problems with TikTok's business in the United States, but some legal questions there as well. Meanwhile, you we had a major hearing with we had where we had the CEO of TikTok appear before a congressional committee this past week, get a very hostile reception, uh, where members of both parties really made it very clear that they were strongly opposed to TikTok, had a lot of reservations about it, and with many of them quite expressly coming out and saying, hey, we think TikTok should be banned. Um, something that really actually hasn't been the focus of the Biden administration's policy on this. It's been much more focused on trying to reach a different ownership structure and otherwise addressing the underlying security concerns that TikTok presents or has been seen as presenting. TikTok, meanwhile, has emphasized that it's still taking steps on its own. It's trying to set up a Project Texas uh, server bank to hold U.S. user information in Texas, um, but it's not addressing the full range of concerns, which often handle things like control of the algorithm, or at least knowledge of the algorithm TikTok uses to push content accessed by the Chinese government. A lot of other questions here that are still hard to manage with these sorts of management questions. Quinta, let me turn to you first on this. As your generation is be more present on TikTok than my generation, perhaps what? the the new the new millennials as opposed to the elder millennials are more of a TikTok. No, 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 like. no. It's no the new the younger millennials you are not TikTok? on TikTok. No, because okay. I write for a website called Lawfare that writes about national security concerns. And I've edited a lot of pieces about concerns about TikTok. So no, Scott, I do not. This is like, are you trying to get me fired? What is this? Well, you know, you never know. Well, tell us a little bit about what you're, where you're coming at in this particular debate. Because I think you're seeing, while you're seeing, frankly, a very focus on TikTok as a problem in government, in particular, in particular in Congress, which is not that unusual for Congress, um, which tends to take where the loudest voices are often the ones with the kind of more straightforward viewpoints. You're hearing the beginnings of a lot of rumblings with a lot of concerns around banning TikTok in a lot of other corners, including from First Amendment advocates, from journalists, from a lot of users um, who, of course, did sue successfully to enjoin the Trump administration, uh, among other people, from implementing their ban back in 2020. So how do you see this debate kind of shaking out among these different factors? and, And where do you see the debate proceeding? I will confess, I did not watch all of the hearing. Uh, The bits that I did watch made it look like kind of a disaster, both for TikTok and for Congress. I don't think anyone really came out looking well. I mean, I should say, going into this, my kind of view is that there are genuine concerns about TikTok. It is not the same as, say, the relationship of a platform like a Meta or a Twitter with the U.S. government. We've run a a fair amount on Lawfare about 
where those concerns stem from. But the the long and the short of it is really that it has to do with the control of the Chinese Communist Party over data uh, within its borders and companies that are run in China. And the specific issues, um, I think, are you know, worth digging into. I don't know if we have time to do it here, but I think it kind of runs the gamut to concerns about data privacy and data security, particularly people who have some kind of connection to the government. Um, and from, you know, is the Chinese Communist Party pushing certain information on TikTok, removing certain information from TikTok, all of which is sort of uh, aggravated because part of what makes TikTok, what has made it such a sensation is the way that the algorithm works to really show everyone a hyper-personalized feed. So these concerns, they are real. Like, I, I don't want to downplay that. And the TikTok CEO, Shazi uh, Chu, really did not have good answers to a lot of the questions that he was asked. That said, <laughs> it really feels to me like, you know, reading coverage of the hearing, there's kind of a split screen of members of Congress really chewing the CEO out and privacy experts saying, you know, the solution to this is not a TikTok ban, whatever form that ban takes. The solution is comprehensive federal privacy legislation. That is so obvious for reasons that we can talk about. And yet people, at least the the folks on the committee, were just not interested in going down that road. I, I think that a lot of it has to do with difficulty in sort of wrapping their minds around the fact that this is one of one of the most popular, if not the most popular social media app right now uh, that is a Chinese app. It is not American. I think there is a certain amount of, you know, a sense that, you know, we we have fallen uh, from the, the space of sort of American dominance over the social media space. I think there's also a certain amount of anxiety over the fact that it's coming from China specifically, which I think it is, as I mentioned earlier, important to sort of piece apart the frankly, xenophobic elements of that from the genuine concerns about the CCP's influence over uh, the app. Um, so it's a, it's a really complicated discussion, and I worry that it is not being treated surprise with the level of nuance that it deserves. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burroughs Memorial Day Sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. 
That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So I am not sure that I actually agree that the solution to the TikTok problem is comprehensive privacy legislation. And I, I, I want to confess at the outset that I don't know what I think of TikTok. I've never used it, and I don't have a particularly informed opinion about to what extent the concerns that have been raised about it are alarmist because it is Chinese, and to what extent it's merited because it's Chinese, and therefore potentially under the influence of of the CCP. But I don't think the concerns about it are limited to privacy concerns. Part of the anxiety about TikTok is that the algorithm uh, for feeding people information is so extraordinarily good and so addictive that it could be used uh, for, for example, a internet research agency like influence operation on steroids, that it's uh, a incredibly powerful propaganda mechanism. I don't know how to evaluate that, but that doesn't seem to me addressable through privacy legislation as opposed to some kind of content regulation of precisely the type that if you did it in the United States would be uh, constitutionally suspect. And so focusing on the ownership issue and the control of the corporation issue rather than the content of what it is spewing into the minds of uh, everybody in the world who is younger than Quinta is, I think, a way of sort of not talking about the question of how we would regulate it if the problem couldn't be cast as foreign uh, ownership. And I I don't know what I think the right answer to that problem is. I, I think one of the problems that the opponents of TikTok seem to me to have is that they have never come forward with a lot of evidence of actual abuse of the platform uh, other than of the type that you could just as easily produce of Facebook or Twitter or uh, any other social media. That, that is, people have done some bad stuff, but it's not clear to me that the party is using it as a propaganda organ or using it to develop comprehensive dossiers on Americans, you know. And so I, I, I don't really know what to think of it, but I don't think it, it, the, the issue is limited to a set of privacy issues. Yeah, I mean, so I should say, I, I want to hear what Alan has to say, but I do think it's important to note that there is there is one way in which TikTok is absolutely different that we do know about, and that's that the Justice Department is currently investigating uh, TikTok's owners for uh, reports that journalists were spied on insofar as TikTok used their uh, information as they browsed the app to try to locate them to figure out who they might be talking to. So that is not something that has happened recently with Facebook or Twitter. And I do think it raises serious concerns. Yeah. So I think that there are three reasons to be concerned about TikTok. The first is this privacy reason. And if that's the main argument, then I I agree. A TikTok ban, I mean, it would help, I guess, um, but it's not fundamentally responsive, right? Because if in the absence of really strong privacy protections, all our information is owned by data brokers. And if the Chinese Communist Party wants it, they'll buy it. 
Uh, the second reason is this propaganda point that Ben made, and I want to get back to in a second. But the third reason, and I think it's a, a non-trivial and legitimate reason, is it's an opportunity to make China look bad, right? It is an opportunity to express that if you are a technology company and you are controlled officially or unofficially by the Chinese Communist Party, we do not want you in our society. And I think that that is 100% okay. Now, I totally take Quintus' concern that opposition to the Chinese Communist Party can become, under certain circumstances, xenophobia. And we should absolutely clarify that and we should, we should fight against it. But at the end of the day, the Chinese Communist Party runs China and therefore they run all Chinese businesses, whether those businesses are state-owned or not state-owned. And I think as a matter of American uh, or Western or liberal democratic soft power, it is completely appropriate when you have an opportunity to, you know, cast a appendage of a, you know, hostile foreign power out of your society to do so. Now, there are maybe costs to that. And I think the most compelling argument about the costs of that are the First Amendment costs. And so there's a great uh, New York Times op-ed from a couple of days ago that we'll link to by Jamil Jaffer, who's the head of the Knight Institute, uh, the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia, at Columbia University. And you know, he makes the argument that the First Amendment is a meaningful and important and legitimate bar against the Biden administration uh, banning TikTok because it's a very important you know, vector for communication and for uh, people who are younger than Quinta. I, I like, well, that should just be a term, younger than Quinta. For people who are uh, YTQ, you know, it's a really key way that they communicate. And to cut that off would be to harm that level of communication. I think it's a totally fair point. I'm, I'm less convinced that the First Amendment doctrine would in fact bar um, the Biden administration from banning TikTok, even in the absence of more concrete evidence that TikTok is abusing its power to poison the minds of, you know, Americans, America's young people. You know, I, I think when you look back at recent First Amendment decisions, whether we're talking about uh, Holder versus Humanitarian Law Project, or you're looking at uh, Citizens United, uh, in which I think Justice Kennedy famously said, um, of course, nothing that we're saying here about campaign finance would extend to foreign contributions, for better or for worse. Uh, and I think in a way that does fundamentally make sense, um, the court does analyze First Amendment issues differently and generally more leniently um, when you're dealing with a foreign government or, you know, someone who's controlled by a foreign government. And, and so, uh, you know, while, while I do think it's worth talking about the First Amendment issue, to, to me, and I think, I do think this is probably where I ultimately come down, though, you know, I, I could be convinced otherwise, just the idea that the most popular app um, among American young people is controlled by a Chinese company that we know cannot say no to the CCP is to me enough, especially given that um, in the absence of a TikTok, there will be domestic or at least non-CCP linked alternatives that I have no doubt will be perfectly suitable, even if they're not quite as viral or addictive. So I want to go back to your original point, Alan, about just kind of slapping China in the face occasionally because we don't like them, which I don't think is a good freestanding justification for things like this, right? <laughs> like, but I don't think that's really what you're arguing here. And to be clear, the Chinese Communist Party, like I, I really do take Quintus' totally. point that like you really have to separate those two things. That's totally fair. Uh, you know, generally speaking, I think in the, the how we approach China, I think is arbitrarily opposing things because they have intersection even with the Chinese Communist Party is not a good strategy because you're trying to balance escalation risks with the fact that we have closely entangled economies, complicated security situations around the world, particularly the Eastern Pacific. A lot of reasons why we don't want to just go zero sum off the bat, right? 
that's it. That doesn't mean you're right. I think in that because this intersects with the Communist Party of China, we have real legitimate security concerns that may be uh, kind of aggravated here. I think if this were other countries where you might have a similar concern, I'm trying to think of a good parallel. Let's say it's like you know the Hungarian government, like the Orban government. Maybe you could satisfy yourself by saying, well. Maybe we can get as part of a settlement by threatening to ban TikTok or threatening to unwind a transaction. Um, we can get them to give us certain transparency and visibility into their business operations or to agree to a certain corporate governance structure that waters down the degree of governmental control that we could be confident and monitor will be executed effectively. There's a whole lot of policy responses you could negotiate and you do sometimes see come out of cases like this, particularly in the CFIUS context where, you know, there are often efforts to kind of mitigate national security concerns, particularly when there is a, a voluntary process. Companies can volunteer to go through these sorts of reviews ex ante, or the government can come at them ex post and say, no, actually, guys, you should have come to talk to us. Now we're going to look at this. And that's what's happening in this case. The fact that China here really complicates all of those because it is an actor that we don't trust, um, rightfully or wrongfully, but probably for good reason in a lot of cases. And it's a high, high capacity, sophisticated actor. It's an actor who we think, particularly when you're talking about things like the algorithm or maybe certain software components, another risk that's here is that China is using the software not just to capture you know, user data um, that we know they're capturing, but using it for a bunch of purposes we may not know what they're doing on their phones. There's this concern that they're going to be able to do things we may not be able to detect, or that it might be so expensive and costly for the US government to stay on top of it it's not really a realistic option. And all this is really complicated. Um, the one thing I'll say is, is that the Biden administration's hands are, are it's, a, it's a difficult hand it has been dealt in this case. I think it's trying to push towards these negotiated solutions. And China has read the leaves, tea leaves, and said, hey, actually, I think we have a lot of leverage here. Because the Biden administration legitimately has problems using IEPA, the legal authority that'd be the easiest way to use this. There's a carve out in the statute for media-related technologies. And that's a big hole for them. The courts have never finally decided what that applies to and what doesn't in terms of social media. But there's a very good argument that it very well might prohibit IEPA from being used for actions like this. Congress might be able to fix that. That might raise First Amendment concerns. CFIUS, not a lot that gets tested. The further outer limits of it get tested in the courts a lot. So we don't really know to what extent the whole divesting authority that it provides can be used. So that means it's kind of going to have to go to Congress. And that's a tricky, tricky battle there. I think Congress... I doubt there's going to be really real constitutional barriers to what Congress can do in this space because of the foreign relations and national security intersection here. But you know, it's tied up with a lot of difficult politics in this particular issue. Um, But I think that's where we're going to see this conversation go. It's much less about the Biden administration, much more to Congress in the medium to long term. Maybe the Biden administration does something short term, but it's going to be such a legal risk that I think they're going to have to look to Congress to find some sort of longer term solution. Moving from security threats abroad, let's talk about some security threats right in the heartland. And by that, of course, I mean the truly bizarre Donald Trump rally from uh, this past weekend, uh, which was held at, uh, in, as Scott mentioned, uh, Waco, Texas. I think it's safe to say that Trump is not subtle about what his campaign strategy will be. The rally opened with a song called Justice for All, uh, sung by members, uh, sung by a choir of members who were in prison for January 6th. The, the speech he gave was not conciliatory uh, at all, but a full-throated attack on the various legal investigations that he is facing. And uh, this part, though, not by Trump, I just think nicely characterizes the whole uh, tenor of the event. Uh, it began with Ted Nugent, the uh, rock star, uh, yelling, I want my money back. I didn't authorize any money to Ukraine to some homosexual weirdo. 
great start to no doubt a great event. Um, uh, Quinta, let, let me let me start with you. Um, what is the significance of this happening in Waco? What happened in Waco all those many years ago? Yeah, so I'm someone well positioned to write about the, or to talk about this because I I just finished writing an essay about it for the the Post. So this year, uh, 2023, is the 30th anniversary of the what's I think people usually call the the Waco siege, the Waco showdown. Essentially, a prolonged standoff between the FBI and the ATF and a small religious group called the Branch Davidians, who were led by a self-styled prophet called David Koresh. Essentially. The long and the short of it is that the ATF rolled in um, because they were concerned that the Branch Davidians had been uh, stockpiling weapons um, and because of some real mismanagement on the federal government's part, it turned into a, a month-long, I think, standoff that ended in a pretty tragic fire uh, when the federal government rolled in. A number of people died, um, including a couple of ATF agents. Well, that is quite bad on its own, but Waco ended up turning into a sort of a rallying cry uh, for the American far right, and particularly for the sort of the rise of the paramilitary movement. So if you think of folks like the Oath Keepers on January 6th, they really rally around the idea of Waco and the idea of a sort of a federal government coming in to take your guns, that that is a huge motivating issue. Um, and so Waco is is often pointed to on the far right as a, a sort of a sign of what the federal government is capable of if you don't stand up against them. I'd also note that it's you really see the echoes of Waco in January 6th. Like I mentioned, the Oath Keepers uh, often point to to Waco. Um, Timothy, Timothy McVeigh, who bombed the Alfred Murrow Federal Building in Oklahoma City, specifically said that he did so in response to Waco, that he wanted to strike back against the federal government. And of course, uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland prosecuted that case. Um, there are a number of folks who have been prosecuted uh, for being in the Capitol on January 6th who have talked about Waco. So it really is, I think it, you can't overstate the resonance of that place and that event to the far right. And Trump going there is very much aligning himself with that in a way that I think is pretty deeply concerning. Scott, do you remember Waco or were you too young? I remember it, but only very kind of indirectly, probably more in historical memory than than there. I think I was what seven, nine. I would have been oh, nine interesting. Have so, so Waco was one of the early events of my professional career. I was twenty three when it happened, and uh, working. I was you know just starting out as a reporter, and it is a you know um, along with the Ruby Ridge siege and. Uh, a few other events that happened in that period is a defining moment, not just on the far right, but also for federal law enforcement uh, in its confrontation on the domestic side. It got a bit sidetracked by, you know, 9-11 and the sort of overseas foreign terrorist threat. But this is a a big, big thing that happened in the relationship between, you know, federal law enforcement and extremist movements domestically, you know. And so, you know, when Trump goes there and, you know, gives a self-regarding 
grievance speech about his confrontation with the deep state and says, you know, we have to destroy the deep state or it's going to destroy us. That's a very powerful message to a lot of people. And it's also, you know, for anybody above a certain age, it's a comment about how he sees the FBI and the Justice Department's pursuit of him. Yeah, I agree with that. I I I totally get how striking it is, and particularly for folks of which I would get. I think I would say I am probably not quite as struck by that as folks who probably are just even like five or six years older than me, just because it it has been something that wasn't quite as impressed on my memory as as things just a few years later. And I'm like the nine eleven generation, right? So everything pre nine eleven kind of fades into the background of a whole different issue set. What I would say here, though, is that this both. I think the smartest thing I've read on this was David French's column in the New York Times yesterday or the day before. David French, always always the guy worth reading. I, I think his work for the Times has been great since he moved over there a few months ago, um, where he makes the point that this isn't about Trump controlling the party. That's not what we're seeing on display here. This is about what he calls mega, but really is this kind of like heavy grievance line of thinking and cultural expression being increasingly dominant in this particular part of the kind of political sphere and Trump leaning into that. And I think that's right. Now, he leans into it for reasons that it really does fit his his personal narrative about what has happened to him. I don't think it's a very accurate narrative, but certainly the way he would have framed it, it's opportunistic for him. He's also just willing to do it. He's willing to be on a stage with Ted Nugent when he screams ridiculous things like that, right? Um, that even if he had a valid policy criticism, decided to veil it with completely unnecessary homophobia and just outright just being very Nugent-y, right? Like, you know, it is... It is a move that he's willing to make that is so brazen, it's just something most politicians are too hesitant to do. DeSantis flirts with it, but he tries to do it in a very sanitized, conventional politician way. And Trump is willing to abandon those conventions and move into it. That's always been his strength in a way. Um, he rides this tiger well, but it's still a tiger, right? It's still not something that he's in control of exactly where it goes. And I'm not sure it's actually a sign of political strength. I think it's kind of the opposite. Because I think it's a sign that he's leaning into a trend, but it's not clear he can steal it, steer it in a better way. Because I don't think this is a path towards re-election. Maybe it's a path towards a Republican nomination, but I'm not sure it's even clearly that. Although nobody's come out to rival it. But if you really wanted to like beat back your opponents, you might find other ways to make yourself more open to other parts of the party that would be easier for you to win. It's really just is this instinctual politics that served him well. Frankly, it served him well once in 2016. And hasn't since. Um, and he's just leaning into it. And so it's more more from exactly what I expect from him. So I don't find it surprising. And I'm I'm not sure it's, like I said, a sign of strength as much as it is a sign of weakness. Yeah. So I mean I I I don't have I guess I don't have a lot to disagree with in the analysis, sort of maybe except the valence of the conclusion. Because like I feel like the way you just described it, for those of us uh who uh would like to avoid a second Trump mega term that ends American democracy as we know it. It's like a good thing to see Trump out there being crazy because that will, you know, make the GOP crazy and then they'll lose again. But I can't get over the fact that if you look historically at US elections, they're just coin flips. Like they're they're like coin flips with like a small uh nudge, right, for like one side or the other. Which is to say that like once you have whether you want to call it Trumpism or MAGAism or MAGAism as currently used by Trump in control of the Republican Party, there's, there's just an element of randomness. And if a couple of states break this way or that way, um, you, know, you could have this in 
back in office in, in 2024. And, and I will say, I mean, looking at just a couple of data points, you know, the fact that Trump has increased his lead over DeSantis by something like, uh, you know, to like some like 26 points up four points in February. And DeSantis seems to be, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's maybe too early to say, but seems to be stumbling maybe a little bit. It, it makes me worry that like the glimmer of hope we saw after the 2022 midterms that maybe this fever is breaking is it was is illusory and it scares the crap out of me. I guess is is what it comes down to. Just to clarify one thing, Alan, I, I would never and kind of categorically reject the argument that you know that we're better off because this going this crazy makes them less electable. That's not an argument I would make. I think this is a very dangerous sort of rhetoric and posi- way for anybody as influential as the former president to position themselves. And I would trade that any day for a more conventional candidate who might win, even if they invo- install policies I don't like. But what I will say, though, is that in this narrative where it's that Trump is still the leader of the Republican Party, I'm not sure that's the way to think of it. I think Trump is tapping into a cultural kind of context that is the dominant framing for the most hardline set of Republican primary voters maybe right now. But I'm not sure that's the whole terrain. I'm not sure it comes with, doesn't come with a lot of downsides electorally and potentially you know, from a primary context. It's dangerous. It's really dangerous. I totally agree. But like I said, it's, it's, he's riding a tiger. And I'm not sure that's always that, that comes with lots of downsides as well. Yeah. I mean, I will say it's striking to me that Trump is doubling down on this. I mean, it's not surprising because of course he is. But a lot of what we saw in the 2022 midterms is that sort of waving the bloody shirt of January 6th is not appealing to voters, right? Candidates who tried to relitigate the 2020 election, candidates who tied themselves to uh, election denialism and to January 6th as a kind of a lost cause, they lost in many cases quite badly in swing states. Now, some of them did win in red states, but I think it is important to keep in mind, like just because this happened to work in 2016 because the coalition shook out exactly the right way across, you know, the electoral college does not mean that it is electoral magic. Um, and and it does seem to me that, you know, if you're just looking at it from a very calculating perspective, it seems like pretty dumb to double down on this. Now, that doesn't mean that it's not dangerous, right? I mean, I think the, the, the reason why I find this so concerning is that it taps into that sort of instinct toward violent paramilitary resistance against the federal government that can lead down some very, very, very ugly roads, as we have seen. That is an extremely dangerous thing. But I think it's important to kind of split off the potential for political violence from what this means in terms of electoral victory. Obviously, those two things are interrelated to some extent, but I think that the the relationship is complicated. Yeah, I mean, just to, just to say a quick thing about the political violence issue, I mean, it's been a running joke in the lawfare slack uh, about, you know, what is happening with the Manhattan DA indictment of Trump and, and you know, like just the kind of the absurd comedy of errors that it seems to have devolved into. But of course, you know, last week or a week and a half ago when it was an imminent, quote unquote, Trump, uh, you know, called for his supporters to come and protest. And, you know, I, I, I think Quintus point about just how close we are to more political violence and just how amazingly the far right has not learned what you would think would be the lesson of January 6th, which is don't try to overthrow the government. It, it's, uh, 
it's, it's, it's really concerning. So actually, so he, he, there is something interesting here, which is that maybe some folks have learned. I'm not saying that everybody has learned, but if you look at the reporting about the pretty pitiful crowd that showed up outside the Manhattan courthouse when it seemed like Trump was really going to be arrested. There were not that many people there. And there was a lot of reporting that folks who were, you know, in extremist groups um, on sort of pro-Trump communities were, t- were telling each other, don't go there. It's a setup by the feds. Um, they're, you're going to show up and they're going to arrest you, which maybe means that, you know, deterrence works <laughs> right now. Granted, I think there is an important distinction between, you know, a random Tuesday when Trump says, hey, show up, I'm going to be arrested and like something actually going down or a group planning an attack in a coordinated systematic way. I'm not saying that this means that no right wing violence will ever happen. But I did find that a very interesting data point. Can I share a really interesting data point I actually discovered when I was poking around through some polling data? I was looking at the morning consult polling data, which right now has 52% of probable primary voters. I don't know exactly how they define that category, but you know something like likely plus, I would guess. Uh, Republican primary voters, 52% would vote for Trump now. 26%, I think, was for DeSantis. Everybody else kind of falls below that substantially. But they noted this was the first week since they've been running this that a majority of respondents in that category said that they had heard some negative news about Donald Trump's legal troubles. Which I think is like an ind- interesting, you know, indicator both of like the media bubbles that we live in and that a lot of probable Republican primary voters live in uh, and the differences between those, but also a sign that I think a lot of the political ramifications of the forces that we see in motion because we follow them very closely and we live in a professional sphere that follows it. I think the political ramifications of a lot of that has not come to fruition yet. Um, and I think that introduce another major wild card and curveball in this that probably is bad for Donald Trump, I would guess. But who knows for sure. But certainly um, certainly a big, a big shoe yet to f- drop. Well, folks, we will have to leave the conversation there for now. But this would not be rational security if we did not bring you some object lessons to ponder over in the week to come. Alan, what do you have for us this week? So I, I had an object lesson, which I'm bumping to next week. So get excited. It's a good one. Inspired by Scott's reference of Kesha with a dollar sign, uh, my object lesson is uh, what I think is the greatest NPR interview of all time. It is an interview that Kesha did on uh, Weekend Edition in January of 2010 with Scott Simon, one of the great NPR hosts. Uh, this was kind of at the beginning of Kesha's stardom. Um, I think this was this was right after the uh, 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 Don't Stop song came out and when Kesha was still describing herself as celebrating, quote, boys, boots, beer, and boobs. Um, that was uh, her self-description of her style. Um, and what's amazing about this interview is that Scott Simon uh, is clearly not excited to talk to Kesha. He doesn't understand why he's talking to this person who's like he assumes is just some like some brainless pop musician. But it turns out that Kesha... Uh, is like remarkably intelligent, super smart, and uh, you know spent her entire childhood like at some point she talks about like driving around like random parts of the state so she could go to different colleges and listen to Cold War lectures. And what's fabulous about it is not only is Kesha remarkably charming and, and continues to be, she's really just fabulous, but you can sort of hear in real time Scott Simon falling in love with Kesha uh, over like a twenty minute interview, and it is I still think just the sweetest, most heartwarming interview. I've ever heard. So I I highly recommend it. We'll link to it. You can listen to it. It's such a good interview. I will say my 
fondest memory of Kesha is in 2013 or 14, I think it was touring the Vatican. And a friend of mine is right when I was coming out back out from Iraq and a friend of mine who's in Iraq still, but somehow was more tuned into music than I was, was like, oh, you haven't heard Timber? The song that, uh, you know, Kesha did with, uh, with who was Tim- it? Timber is good. Pitbull. Wasn't it wasn't Florida? I think maybe they were both. I can't remember exactly. But he insisted on playing this for me in the Vatican uh, <laughs> to, to hear. Oh, Much awesome. to this may of tourists around us who, who did not appear to speak English, but did appear to recognize the song. So it was a very Kesha move, I will say. Um, so hats off to that friend who celebrated a birthday recently, I will say. Yeah. I just want to say the, the line, and this is from Don't Stop, brush my teeth with a bottle of Jack is still, I think, one of the great one of the great images in Western pop music, like top 10 best lyrics of all time. So it's a gross concept, honestly. Jack Daniels is generally just a gross concept. Sorry, Jack Daniels, don't at me. We, on, on this podcast, we drink the Glenlivet Enigma. <laughs> we drink puzzle-based scotch here. <laughs> if, it does, if it's not puzzle-based, I'm not interested. Anyway, Quinto, what do you have for us this week? <laughs> I, I really I can't top that. Um, my object lesson is the HBO show Succession. It is back. I'm so happy. Um, this is the last season. I am definitely in the uh, extremely self caricaturing category of journalists who are completely obsessed with this show. Um, I, I think it is in pretty rare form, um, and apparently. The uh, fourth season is supposed to be extremely good, so I am stoked. Ben has just said that uh, in our, our chat that he is the Logan Roy of Lawfare, which is a truly horrifying thought, and I don't want to <laughs> delve into what that might signify. <laughs> Do you even know what Succession is? Yes, I've, I've watched. Oh, uh, wow. I, I think I watched uh, the first two seasons of it, but I haven't... I am on a television abstention kick that has been going on for about a year, and I have watched nothing. I have not watched a movie or anything for more than a year, and I'm seeing how long I can keep it up. Wow. Well, I mean, it's 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 because you're spending all your time on TikTok, I assume. <laughs> also, because I've been reading fascists. Um, I've oh, been so, on yeah. A, well, speaking oh, of yeah. fascists, oh boy. Uh, so I I will say there is uh, one portion of the opening episode of this season that is very relevant to uh, listeners to rational security. So the show is about uh, what's essentially a fake Fox network um, called ATN. And at the in the credit sequence at the beginning of each season, they show you uh, television screens with headlines from the, the fake network, which are kind of parodies of Fox headlines. So last season, I think there was something about uh, transgender refugees crossing border twice, which I you could write a dissertation on that. This season, uh, one of the headlines was... Deep State Blunder, classified docs displayed on NBA Jumbotron. Excellent. We should Uh, live to make it true. (laughs) One day, one day. Um, I will say my favorite thing about that show is I recently learned character Shiv. I've only seen the show sporadically, but I do like the character Shiv and I like the name. But I was like, that's kind of a stupid name for a character. I didn't realize it's it's short for Siobhan. S-I-O-B-H-A-N, one of my favorite Gaelic names, which is charming. And now I'm, I'm, I'm back in, guys. It's great. I don't understand the appeal of the show. They're all such sociopaths. They're all so unpleasant. That is my problem with it as well. But it does have its moments. It does have pretty hilarious moments. I'll say. My wife was into it. I, I've, I've, uh, maybe perhaps I'll pick it back up at some point. 
for my object lesson this week, uh, I'm going to do two because I couldn't decide. Uh, and one's one's a takeaway and one's a give me. Um, one, I'm going to do something that will piss Ben off, but I, I'm going to plug another podcast network. I'm going to say this first. You should give money to support Lawfare and the Lawfare podcast. If you're listening to this, please do. If you don't listen to the end, that's what we say at the end when you stop listening. So I'll say it now. Go to patreon.com slash lawfare. But there's another ph- phenomenal podcast network that I listen to a lot of the other time when I'm listening, when I get sick of listening to the sometimes difficult and like heavy and depressing topics that uh, we talk about in Lawfare, which is most of my podcast listening tends to be in that vein. I listen to a lot of goofy culture and comedy podcasts, uh, a lot of which put forward by Maximum Fun, a really fun podcast network that does an annual drive with lots of perks. So bump over there, check that out. If you like Rational Security's kind of chatty vibe, I actually think you would really like it. I think Rational Security would actually kind of fits kind of well as that kind of family of show uh, of uh, a lot of personality uh, trying to mix in with some heartfeltness and some interesting information. So worth worth checking out if you have not uh, listened to Maximum Fun. A lot of shows with like a lot of people just chatting about comedy stuff, movies, films. There's some one where a bunch of brothers play Dungeons Dragons with their dad that I love. So it's great. Definitely worth checking out. The other thing I'll say is it's springtime and springtime means one dish that I think is amazing. And I finally found a good recipe for, which is pasta primavera. Pasta primavera usually can be gross. I've tried a bunch of different recipes. None of them really work out. But occasionally I've had one in a restaurant that's so good. I keep chasing it every time there's spring. And I found one, first one, first one I tried this season. That's amazing. It is, of course, by Melissa Clark. Of course. She gets me again. Uh, it's phenomenal. It's super easy. I put it together in like 20 minutes last night for dinner. And the secret ingredient not what you'd expect. It's creme fraiche, she says, which is annoying to have. But if you don't have creme fraiche, you can use Greek yogurt. I'm not going to lie. I liked it better. I use both. I liked the, the Greek yogurt better. And it was super easy and came together. It was amazing. Exactly what you want to eat in spring. So I will put that in the show notes as well to check out. Thank you, Melissa Clark, as always, for your culinary genius. Ben, what do you have for us to bring us home this week? I also have two object lessons, the first of which was inspired by Donald Trump's uh, recording of music with the January 6th Tabernacle Choir, um, which reminded me of the last time that a conservative politician did spoken word audio on a recorded musical track. And that was, of course... Margaret Thatcher's performance of Aaron Copeland's Lincoln portrait in the 1990s performed with the London Symphony. It is no longer in print. It is one of the genuinely strangest performances I have ever heard because among other things, because the piece is so American and she comes in with her you know, uh, Parliament British accent and perfect diction reciting uh, this weird text about Abraham Lincoln. And it is strangely moving. And so I would say I have been unable to find I've many references to it on Google, but unable to find a YouTube video. Go find it and listen to it. Margaret Thatcher, ex-Prime Minister, sometime 94 or 95, uh, recording Lincoln portrait and uh, reciting it, you know, in the Queen's English. Uh, it is uh, uh, beautiful and ridiculous and much better than Donald Trump uh, singing with a bunch of uh, January 6th conspirators. Speaking of the early 90s culture and Waco, Texas, 
one cannot fully talk about Waco, Texas without talking about the magazine that captured the full zeitgeist of uh, the time, uh, which was Spy Magazine, founded by uh, Graydon Carter and uh, Kurt Anderson. And uh, in 1993, shortly after both the first World Trade Center bombing and Waco, Uh, Spy Magazine published in their Great Expectations column a advice guide to figuring out if you are next. And uh, the first question was, are you an American? But the second question to find out if you're next in getting killed in violent uh, conflagrations is, would it be accurate to describe my place of religious worship as a compound? And if so, does my spiritual leader tend to describe himself as immortal or to say things like, if the Bible is true, then I'm Christ. If he does, then you may already be dead. If not, you may be assured to know, reassured to know that as the Dallas Morning News reported, Although some experts believe that there are indeed many well-armed cultist groups in Texas, most speculate that no more than 10 or 12 have any real potential for violence. And you, Spike Lee fans, can rest easy. I'm a filmmaker, Lee recently admitted. Not Jesse Jackson, not Jesus, not the savior. So that brings you back to the moment when... (laughs) David Koresh was so in the public mind that you didn't even have to name him to raise fears about where things were going from there. When you started your unlikely Margaret Thatcher endorsement, I could have sworn you were going to go talk about John Ashcroft's Let the Eagle Soar, which is my personal favorite unexpected (laughs) politician musical rendition that was the singing the singing senators man that was bad shit with him and and orrin hatch and john danforth yeah but it was not kitsch compared to to maggie thatcher doing that one amazing well well folks that brings us to the end of this week's episode rational security is of course a production of lawfare so be sure to visit lawfareblog.com for our show page with links to past episodes for our written work and the written work of other lawfare contributors and for information on Lawfare's other phenomenal podcast series. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at RATL Security, and be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. While you're at it, sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare at the aforementioned patreon.com slash lawfare for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. We are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Patcha Howell. On behalf of my co-host, Alan Quinta, and our special guest, Benjamin Wittes, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we'll talk to you next week. Till then, goodbye. That's the sound of another sale on Shopify. In store. Shopify POS is everything you need to sell in person. From payments to inventory, Shopify unites your sales into one commerce platform. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash retail 23. Shopify.com slash retail 23.